welcome to the Seamless Connection podcast. I know what you're thinking. I'm not Mina. I'm guest hosting today, and Mina is joining us on the podcast, which is really exciting, as well as uh, we have a, a, a big crew here with us today. I'm going to start off by giving everyone, uh, we'll start with Mina, giving them a chance to give their 30-second intro, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into this, this great episode here today. Mina, take it away. Fantastic. Thanks, Jared. We'll have to have a poll after to see who hosted it better. Um, I am thrilled to have all our my uh, my partners here today with of the podcast. Looking forward to diving into uh, all the different thoughts of fast healthcare across the board. Um, and I don't want to take up too much time because you've all heard from me uh, plenty of times in the past. So, uh, to Colin. Hey, hello, everyone. Colin Bannis, uh, Chief Medical Officer for Doctor First, um, internal medicine physician by training. Joined the company about five years ago. But prior to that, I was the CMIO and a hospitalist uh, for uh, Virginia Commonwealth University Health System. I was there for 17 years before joining Dr. First. Hi, everyone. I'm Stacey Johnston. I am Vice President and Chief Applications Officer here at Baptist Health in Jacksonville, Florida. And I am also a hospitalist. I still practice medicine on uh, some nights and weekends. I was the former Chief Medical Information Officer here at Baptist and have moved over for full responsibility of the uh, all of the clinical and revenue cycle applications, including Epic and so many others. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm, I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for a different Baptist, Baptist Memorial Healthcare based out of Memphis, Tennessee, no affiliation with the one in, in Florida. Um, I, and I'm also the CMO for our Baptist Medical Group, where I run our virtual clinic. And I do see patients in that clinic, as well as in the hospital as a hospitalist on occasion. Thanks, everyone, for those quick intros. And I'm really excited for this conversation today because we have kind of people in, in different roles. Uh, so we're going to really tee up some questions individually, and then we'll also have some opportunities for people to add on to someone else's response. So we'll start with uh, Dr. Bannis. How has the role of a chief medical officer evolved in recent er uh, years through your lens? And uh, I would really love if you could particularly highlight, you know, what role AI and, and challenges have uh, ended up creating in terms of a global health well, crisis. Sorry, that was like two big questions. Uh, yeah, and I think you'll get a different answer from a CMO of a, of a healthcare IT company than you will from... Uh, someone like Jake, who is you know heading up a, a health system or an ambulatory um, clinic, but you know one of the the biggest things that comes to mind within the last uh, five years is leadership uh, in a work from home environment in a remote environment. Um, it's a lot different than it was when I first started with the company in terms of interactions with folks. Um, meetings, um, you know, the organic uh, conversations and things that occur just from simply being together. And so, you know, taking on a CMO role uh, post-pandemic when things have been gone largely remote, and I'm, I'm probably not alone. I think a lot of what my health system colleagues are experiencing is probably very similar, uh, probably more hybrid than what I have. So I think that's a, a very big one, a pretty big distinction from 2020 to prior to 2020. Um, you mentioned um, AI. You know, the other challenge with CMO in the healthcare IT is keeping up. It is really, really difficult to keep up. I mean, it was difficult before, uh, even from a clinical perspective, it was almost nearly impossible, which is why technology is so important at the point of patient care. But keeping up with 
the explosion of uh, artificial intelligence within the last year has become very difficult. That you know, every day it seems like there's another paper either saying this greatest thing since uh, Swiss cheese, or AI is evil. Look at its you know the payers are using it to deny appropriate care um, to you know Medicare Advantage patients, which was a pretty big story a couple of weeks ago. So keeping up is hard. I spend a, I actually do spend a fair amount of time reading. I, I think I always did, but reading specifically about AI, whether it's peer-reviewed literature, testimonials, even podcasts, um, there's just so much out there to absorb. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I feel like it's, it's not a podcast nowadays if AI is not mentioned, at least, you know, it has to hit that five to 10 quota or wh- what are we doing here, right? Yeah, but it's it's lost its it's lost its luster, you know, like people are, are, are dull to it now, you know, you how do you separate the real from the from the you know, the overblown promises. How do you know if it really is AI or if people are just attaching that tag? Yeah, that is a really good point. I get vendors that, I mean, every single vendor in healthcare right now has an AI component. I mean, I don't think they would approach anybody and say that they didn't have anything related to artificial intelligence. Even if when you look under the hood, it's, it's you know, just some simple regression or something like that. Yeah, for for us, I think it's a lot of it is governance and um, not implementing AI just for AI's sake. And so you really, this is where your informatics is really going to play a key role. What are some of the key workflows, key initiatives um, that where AI can really play a role? So we set up an AI institute, which is basically our governing body of any AI. Uh, we've actually done some work with Dr. First in partnering with them and, and helping uh, utilizing AI to help the medication reconciliation and the med history be more accurate, have um, more data coming in. Um, they're able to infer medications uh, from prescriptions uh, when there's incomplete information in the database. Um, so there are definitely key use cases for AI. Another one that we are really looking forward to is um, we are the one of the early adopters of Epic's AI in-basket solution. And um, uh, it's a lot of prompt engineering, um, but I, I tell the docs and we're, that we're working with, it's not going to solve all of the world's, you know, in-basket problems. It's really specific use cases. It can't make clinical decisions. And so it's about um, basically queuing up a message that would be appropriate to send to the patient, but it still needs to be reviewed by the provider. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, great work there. Another great one that we're working on um, is uh, AI and targeting specific atrial fibrillation and where uh, the appropriate ablation should be. So, so there are some amazing use cases out there, but you have to be deliberate. You have to have a, a significant amount of governance around AI, and you know what is your comfort level within your organization for moving forward with some of these solutions. And one of the things that we've seen, at least from a, from a vendor perspective, and Jake, I'd love to see, uh, Stacey and, and Colin, if, if you guys are seeing the same thing, one of the things we hear from hospitals all the time is data and analytics. So Stacey, you gave some great use cases in terms of how it can be used from a provider perspective, clinically, et cetera. But one of the, the key pain points we're hearing from hospitals as well is um, they don't have as much visibility as they would want or like in terms of what's happening with the data that they already have, right? It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of data. But what does it mean at the end of the day? What are the actual insights? 
are you seeing a lot of AI? So I know our platform does that for our clients, but I don't, that's not something I see more broadly. And that's still a complaint I hear pretty much from across the board, I think. So I'd love to see what you guys are, are also seeing there. Uh, I'll take a stab at that uh, if that was uh, if that was a softball to, to the masses. But uh, I think I think you're spot on that there's tremendous potential. I think you'll hear a lot of people talk about uh, large language models and, and generative AI as the as something that can take large amounts of uh, data and particularly unstructured data and help provide that summary or that that longitudinal view. It also has um, the opportunity to normalize that data. Uh, you know, despite two decades of digital, uh, you know, digital records more or less. We still have a semantic interoperability problem. We still have systems that um, they're better at talking to each other, but they're still not perfect. You know, we're, we're getting good at sending blobs of text from point A to point B, but how do we make that usable? And I think AI and particularly AI that can rapidly. Yeah, some of the things I've seen uh, recently related to, you know, using AI to help understand a data set. Um, there's been a lot of things coming out um, we have not uh, adopted them yet, but I'm excited about you know some of Microsoft's Copilot tools where they'll have an Excel file and and you know if you've seen the, their demos and show you um, you know how they use it to to analyze the data set and essentially create graphs, et cetera. Uh, Epic's doing similar things within its Cosmos and Slicer Dicer platforms, um, being able to to analyze data because you're right. I mean we have way too much data and not enough people that are able to. Um, to analyze and what, you know, some of the other great things that are, uh, are helping our reporting team, um, not really in a, an official capacity, but just with SQL queries, being more proficient in doing that, being able to get somebody up to speed really quickly by using a tool like ChatGPT or something else to, um, to help them write a query at a much faster rate than it, they would in the past. So a lot of things related to efficiency in that regard. Yeah, I think it's about the efficiency and the data and analytics is what builds that efficiency into it. And so our um, AI governance is actually chaired by our vice president of data and analytics. And so having that direct close partnership with your data and analytics team is, I think, really the only way for AI to be truly uh, successful. Um, and scalable. And so, you know, we had talked a lot about the clinical AI, but there are so many other components, um, you know, using the summarizer type of functionality and summarizing meeting minutes and um, summarizing your policies to make it more digestible for your, you know, for your employees. And so there's also a lot more that we could be doing with revenue cycle and automation and, you know, quicker turnaround of some of these just, you know, easy, discrete processes, um, but utilizing components of AI, we can, you know, make those workflows more, much more efficient. Staying on you, Stacy, for just a moment, like in your role, how do you prioritize and manage the development of new applications such as virtual specialty care? And, and I'm going to say it again, an AI uh, in a rapidly, you know, involving healthcare landscape that we're in today. I, I think you're going to hear this word uh, probably a couple more times from me. It's it's about governance. And so, um, you know, the saying I say to all my clinical and operational leaders is if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And so we have to, 
I've set up service line meetings where I go and meet with all of the service line and clinical leaders. And then we review, here are all the projects you've requested. What are your priorities? What should my team be working on? And so then each of those service line groups then roll up to a larger IT uh, ELT meeting. So our executive leadership is in charge of our IT steering committee. And then they get a final say of, does a project move forward? Is this something that we have the bandwidth to take on? Uh, oftentimes we don't think about the bandwidth of the organization. Sometimes we usually think about the bandwidth of IT, um, bandwidth of the interface team or the data and analytics team. But what about bandwidth for nursing and bandwidth for your clinical end users? They have a lot of changes coming to them all at one time, and they aren't able to fully utilize some of these solutions because we're throwing so much new technology at them at one time that our adoption rates can be low. And so we really have to work at that governance level and ensuring that we can take on new projects, not only, again, from an IT standpoint, and of course, funding, uh, that we do have the funding to move forward, but you know, more than anything, making sure that the organization can take it on as well, too. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, talking about the governance and, and not just bringing in AI for AI's sake, it's really got to solve a problem that you have. Um, and, you know, as, as far as how we prioritize them, we would do it, you know, is it going to have a financial benefit? Is it going to have a patient safety or quality benefit? Or is it going to improve the efficiency of our staff and reduce some of that burnout? So those are kind of the, the buckets we look at. And obviously we have to have funding for it, um, which, you know, if you've talked to hospital systems across the country in the last year, is it, very tight right now. So really looking at those ROIs very carefully and not just bringing on something because it's a new shiny object. And one of the things that I'm, and I'm curious to see how broadly this applies is one of the things we've seen um, through our platform and through our clients is um, pulling out point solutions, like you both were saying, driving operational efficiencies. Everyone's so laser focused on those budgets and how to drive those operational efficiencies through fewer point solutions, consolidated point solutions. And Stacey, that would help with what you were saying as well, which is helping with the staff, right? You don't have to retrain on five different options for one for virtual specialty care, one for stroke, one for direct to patient, one for what have you. Um, and I'm curious if that's a broader push now because the pain is so high. I guess you know you have to read a certain pain threshold to, and you're willing to do that kind of replacement. Um, and so I've seen that kind of start in the ground swell. I'm wondering if that's a broader movement across the country or not quite yet. I'd also add in the concept of application rationalization. So I've developed an application rationalization team. That's what they're dedicated to. It's basically the quality assurance of all of our um, applications. And so we, um, they're responsible for managing the testing, the upgrades, patching, and ultimately, is this application still in use? And if not, um, then we need to sunset it. And if it is still in use, but there's something that can be offered by, you know, kind of our, the ones that we partner with, our strategic partners, then can we move them off of this, you know, small niche application onto one of our bigger strategic partners? And that's, you know, easier to maintain, usually more cost effective. And so that's something that I really challenge organizations to put a significant work effort into that because you're going to find that there is going to be ROI attached to it. It's easier to maintain. It's easier to govern. And then from the end user point perspective, they have more of a singular experience instead of going to five or six different solutions for that, you know, for that entire workflow. This, this next question, by the way, is for everyone. Uh, we'll start with you. Um, uh, we'll start with you, Colin. So, 
and then we'll go we'll actually we'll do Colin Jake uh Stacy Mina. How do you balance the need? Stacy said it a couple times in terms of governance, right? How do you balance the need for technological innovation with the concerns about data privacy and security and healthcare? And I'll just add when I was on that panel with the 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 Champa General folks, their their VP of transformation Dr. Peter Chang he was talking about when looking at new vendors, the number one thing that they're looking at is that data and security piece beyond everything else, right? Beyond, beyond funding, beyond. Um, so uh, we'll start with you, Colin. You know, how, do, how is everyone balancing that need here? You know, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, the, the easy way out is that's the million dollar question, right? Um, a lot of times in my former roles as CMIO, um, I, I had a feeling of innovation being stifled by regulatory. So uh, I need to do X, Y, and Z for the meaningful use program, or we need to implement these things uh, for stars or, you know, pick, pick your program. And now I can't go do that cool thing with sepsis with the, you know, the critical care team or whatnot. And that actually persisted for quite some time. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a couple headwinds that I think are coming for AI right now. Uh, one is, and, and, and I, I alluded to this earlier, there was actually recent uh, testimony uh, at, the, um, at the House related to the role of AI in um, healthcare. And the number one question that was asked by all of them was around data privacy and security. Um, how do we make sure that the algorithms are actually equitable and not, um, you know, slanted towards one population or the other. And you get the sense in, in things like uh, the HIT1 regulations that are, are proposed that there's there's some regula regulatory um, potential restrictions that are coming in the field of AI. And I think that alone will be like, you know, meaningful use, you know, redux in terms of slowing a lot of this down. That's just my opinion, you know, the the other way to look at it is the, the the genie is out of the bottle and this thing is racing like Mach 10 down the down the hill and then the gains uh, when when shown might might be so impressive that you can't really slow it down. I know that's a long winded answer, but this you know the answer is it's tough. It's tough to balance those two. Yeah, I, I don't have too much more to add. Just that every new application, every new piece of software, every new algorithm that touches our our system and our data has to go through our standard thorough privacy and security and legal review. And so, you know, there's not really any exceptions. I would say with, with regards to AI, it's probably even a little it's scrutinized even more, um, especially, you know, some of these things that are tied to uh, the large language models that had some issues with hallucinations, et cetera, early on. We just really want to make sure that that's what it's doing is, is you know, meets our standards. So it may slow things down. Um, but you know that is it's something we feel we need to, to do to protect ourselves and protect our patients. I would echo the exact same thing. So we have a similar process in place where we have um, any new project request will be coming in and getting a risk assessment and privacy, legal, and a security review um, before it goes to any of the larger governing bodies where those are your clinical and operational leaders. Um, approving projects to move forward. So, and those have to be completed. And then in Florida, we also have a little bit um, more difficult um, 
bill that we are trying to meet the needs with the data security and that no uh, data can be stored offshore um, for any Florida healthcare organizations. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that across other um, states as well too. So that added a layer of complexity to our security assessment this past year. Um, but that is something that we've been um, moving forward with as well too. Yeah, actually, and that's interesting that you bring that up, Stacey. Uh, from a vendor perspective, we've actually seen that uh, that requirement actually take hold across the board um, in terms of no data, anal, you know, anal analysis, storage, any of that, um, as well as subcontractors, right, not being international and having special call-outs for them if you do have any ready. So um, that's actually, uh, over the last year, something we've seen come through pretty standard in all the security reviews. Uh, from a vendor perspective, we obviously um, take that as, as critical because for us, I mean, obviously just as important it is for you all um, from a patient data perspective, from a vendor perspective, you have one breach, you're done, right? Like that's not something you're going to come back from. And so it is critical. It is literally mission critical in terms of make or break for your company to make sure you're dotting all I's, crossing all T's, making sure you have redundancies upon redundancies, SOC 2, HIPAA compliance, um, getting your BAAs in place, having your security protocols, uh, backups, all of that in place is, is table stakes, right? And you need to go that extra mile to make sure that the training you're doing for your staff, the way that you're making sure that, because at the end of the day, we've all seen this multiple times, it's human error that lets this happen. It's not because someone wrote faulty code. It's because someone accepted a phishing email or someone gave out a password or what had, someone left their laptop somewhere they shouldn't have. Um, so those trainings and, and regular protocols and reminders are going to be just as important as the security reviews you do once a year or at the beginning of that relationship and making sure you have that full faith and trust in that relationship. Both, both for you guys and for us, quite frankly, um, as a mission critical step for us as a vendor. Mina, how do you see the relationship between healthcare providers and technology evolving over the next decade? And we'll, we'll go down the list again, because I always like these future outlook questions, because you all get to paint a picture of the future. And, you know, it's weird. It usually comes true. So uh, if you, you want to say you each win the lottery, a couple other things that all benefit us as well, that's that's not a bad thing either. Um, and, and Jared, just to clarify, are you talking about from a provider perspective, like actual physician providers or yes. uh, what are you referring yeah. to? Uh, uh, physician pr yeah, physician providers. Exactly. Yeah. So so for us, like what we saw and we started before COVID um, and we, we started Amplify MD. Uh, we are a, a multi-specialty physician group as well as a SaaS platform to deliver access to specialty care. And we started before COVID because we saw the issue with lack of access to care and the, and the way that the supply and demand imbalance is there. And there just aren't enough providers. So we started it to drive efficiency so that we can we can have the doctors that we do have reach more patients. Um, obviously, COVID accelerated dramatically, and I think maybe in a once in a lifetime, hopefully, uh, way uh, the uptake of, of telehealth to drive care. But um, for us, as I see going forward, the winners and losers of this will be the ones that can continue to drive that efficiencies for providers because the physician burnout issue has not gone away. Um, sorry, if you can hear the baby crying, <laughs> I'm at the airport. I'm going to start over on that one, uh, Jared. Um, so for the winners and losers from our perspective going forward as a medical group, it's continuing to drive efficiencies for providers and making sure that the provider burnout issue is something that we can help them solve. Why our providers love coming to us and why we continue to recruit um, very in-demand specialties is because they see our platform and they're like, this makes my day so much easier, right? This helps me practice medicine the way I want to. This helps me spend more time with the patient. And that for us, what we see is the success for the future is continuing to drive that level of engagement from a provider-patient perspective and to take away the friction points for providers and for the on-site care teams is what's going to be the key to continuing to drive telehealth adoption, 
um, and continue to drive the, the, the expansion of access to care across the country. And then we can kick it over to uh, Stacy, Jake, and then Colin. Okay, yeah. So I'd say for us, I'm, I'm putting a lot of our money in voice recognition capabilities and really expanding that. And especially uh, with a nuanced Microsoft partnership, I think that's going to be something that's going to be game changing. Um, so we are an alpha pilot for um, Nuance for Rover and Epic and utilizing voice recognition to um, fill out the assessments utilizing an AI component. And then we've also um, are an early adopter for the DAX co-pilot as well too. And so that's, again, that's nuances using the kind of the core functionality of DAX, but with the AI component, instead of having that person in the background um, creating these um, documents from that conversational, so that ambient voice recognition. Um, I, I'd say that is probably gonna give us time back. Again, trying to look at in-basket and it's not just AI, but really looking at team-based care. You know, a lot of the physician burnout studies show that there are several things contributing. The EHR is one, um, but it's also flexibility and scheduling and um, feeling like they have to take full ownership of that patient journey. And so allowing to promote for more team-based care. So putting psychiatrists in primary care offices, having the MAs and nurse practitioners play a bigger role, that's all gonna contribute to less work on the physicians and you know, hopefully start to decrease some of those burnout components. Um, I also believe in telehealth, um, not just what we think of telehealth, but more of that asynchronous visit. So how can we take the wearable devices and improve patient care, but not add that burden to the docs? And so, you know, if an alert goes, where does it go? How does that manage? So you really have to think through some of the clinical workflows of some of these uh, other technologies um, like the wearables and how do you embrace that without adding just one more thing for the docs to manage? That's something that I think a lot of organizations are going to have to work through. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say I'm, I'm optimistic uh, for the future, uh, which, you know, maybe just characteristic of me. Um, I know, you know, when we initially adopted uh, our electronic health records or IT uh, in healthcare, it didn't really lead to the productivity that uh, everybody was expecting. You may have seen that the recent uh, paper in, in JAMA um, from, you know, Bob Walker and others um, talking about this. Um, but with the large language models and some of the AI that, um, you know, we're bringing in now, I think the burden that the EHRs have created or, or led to or exacerbated um, can hopefully be facilitated. So automating some of that documentation, as Stacey was mentioning, automating some of the responses to patient messages, just the ability to get discrete data from, you know, text that uh, should help solve some of these, uh, you know, reporting on quality metrics and et cetera, that has been so burdensome to the healthcare systems, not just the physicians, but other staff members. So I think there's a huge opportunity there that AI can help with, um, as well as with diagnosis, we haven't really talked about, but there's, you know, paper after paper every day talking about how um, some of these large language models and et cetera, other AI programs are, are doing um, as well or better with the physician at diagnosing some complex diseases um, and so it may, may really help because I think it's still about 10% of all uh, diseases are misdiagnosed or we missed. Um, I think that's the statistic that I've heard. So a lot of opportunity there 
uh, for artificial intelligence to help us. And, and we've used this some already. Um, you know, we have a lot of different AI modules from different companies that have come in uh, within our system, either related to uh, you know, diagnosing strokes based on imaging findings, sepsis through, through EPICS um, um, tools, or, or now with a lung nodule and follow-up screening, et cetera. I think we're, we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of this coming around, and I'm, I'm optimist, optimistic for the future. Yeah, I think Stacy and, and Jake are spot on. I think, I think, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't throw this out there. I hate the term artificial intelligence. I'm I'm the guy who always says let's call it augmented intelligence because it's really augmenting the the clinical work. It's certainly not meant to replace folks. Um, I think ten years will be drastically different. I think we will look back and say, how did I ever practice without this? Um, which will be fun. I don't think it'll be as fast as we want it to be. Um, I think we're in a sort of a crawl, walk, run phase right now. And I think um, what we're doing right now with crawling is exactly what, what Jake and Stacy are talking about, which is some of the lower risk use cases to remove uh, burden. You know, help me write my note, help me respond. Um, uh, you know, remind me of this, but don't take on, you know, full on decision making, et cetera. Uh, but rather serve as this this assistant. And this assistant will only get smarter as time goes by. But I think we'll be a little bit frustrated. But at the end of 10 years, I think we'll be, we, we will look back and as I said, we'll, we will ask ourselves, how do they possibly practice without this? Which is exciting. Last question for everyone that I want to focus in on, because you all kind of have a different perspective, a, a similar but still different perspective given your different areas. Um, Colin, we'll start with you. We'll just go reverse order. Uh, it's really around your 2024 outlook for your particular space. Um, where do you see healthcare heading? Um, you know, we've had conversations with founders. We've talked about the funding climate. We've talked about, you know, uh, key strategies. A lot of people's strategies on like dig uh, the digital health side was to try to partner with the health system or partner with the payer. I feel like that's been the game plan for a number of years. But really curious to hear what you think, uh, what your perspective is of 2024 when we think of healthcare? Yeah, you know, the, the narrow focus, uh, if you can call it narrow, of Dr. First is what I consider intelligent medication management, all the way from writing the prescription to medication reconciliation to patient adherence, et cetera. And the growth of specialty medications is astronomical right now. I don't think you can, you know, turn, turn left without seeing a new drug, a, a new wildly successful results, et cetera. And uh, we're always about removing friction uh, for any part of the healthcare team. And so we're taking, uh, we're taking dead aim at improving the friction related to specialty, uh, improving the experience for, for all those involved. So I, I think that's a major focus for Dr. First in the, in the 2024. I'd say for us, it's really about the deployment of what we have. We are moving forward with new technologies as well, too. Um, but I really want to make sure that we have the best EMR that we possibly can. And so uh, we just earned Epic 10 Gold Stars at less than a year after being live. And we just won the most wired award for both ambulatory and um, inpatient. Um, and so, so our technology is fully deployed. But really, 
focusing on adoption and embracing the technologies that we have to ensure that they're pure as possible. So, you know, making sure we're on the latest upgrades, um, making sure that we take all of the features and functionalities, and then that we train our docs and our end users on these features and functionalities. Of course, we're moving forward with other big initiatives. Um, you know, as we mentioned, several of the A1s that we're moving forward with as well, too. Um, but I want to ensure just the four walls of our system has the best technology possible before we start bringing on more and more and more, because adding new technology on a system that isn't functional is going to only create more frustration for your end users. But adding technology as a supplement to a really good system is only going to enhance that experience. Yeah, I, I would agree with Stacy. We're probably in a similar boat. Um, you know, I think a lot of the large healthcare systems are. Um, you know, right now, you we mentioned the the financial um, climate for healthcare. I, I think you know that's certainly going to affect our outlook for 2024. So it would be incrementally adopting uh, what we currently have with current current vendors and expanding that to to more and more users. Um, you know, I know we're doing several things related to to DAX and in Epic. It, as well, and so just really trying to grow those um, projects uh, to decrease some of that friction and burden on the physicians. That's my primary aim: is trying to get them uh, trying to get them less burnout. And so that's what I'm focused on. And then the other things that we'll be looking into um, are again expanding some of our lung nodule program and et cetera. Things that will um, you know help um, you know help bring more patients into the system and get them seen earlier and diagnosed sooner. So I would say that those are our main aims and what I see as far as a 2024 goes. Um, and yeah, just getting people more and more comfortable with some of these new AI solutions and, and more willing to adopt them. You know, we've, we have a bunch who have a bunch of positions, early adopters, as, as you likely know, you know, they come in different uh, groups. So you'll get some that will adopt very, very quickly, and some will come a year or two later, and then some will come kicking and screaming. So I th we think we've gotten all the ones that are very quick adopters on, and so now it's going to be moving on to the next group. Got it. Jared, do you want to tweak your question at all from uh, here? I want, I, you can one? just maybe add some piece to it. I would also, for for your perspective, I would really love to hear too is, you know, part of the nature of, of your role, you're talking to investors. I'd be curious to also maybe hear from an investor side of things, like from these conversations you hear with investors, like what's the landscape look like in terms of uh, healthcare funding as well when we look into 2024? Yeah. Um, so what Jake was saying earlier in terms of there's nobody he talks to right now from a vendor perspective that doesn't have AI. And there's a reason for that because there's no investor investing in a company right now that doesn't have AI as some part of their description. So it's, it's one of those uh, incentivized kind of um, reality matching what the incentives are out there. Um, and I think part of that is because people do see the opportunity. Obviously, there's a lot of fear and caution in terms of how it's used and where it's used and what's appropriate, what's not. Um, but from an investor perspective, there's definitely a lot of excitement around what can AI do in A, today, but B, to the next level, right? There's the initial stage of how can it just do basic operational efficiencies more than what we're doing because healthcare compared to tech, for example, is very behind in terms of what it can do and what it can speed up operationally. Um, so what? So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit on that perspective alone, and we all know how tight budgets are. You know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that people are trying to find to help improve margins. So 
low hanging fruit. What can we do? What can we attack? We know that there's a good product market fit. That's where investors are coming from initially. But then that next level, which I think is more interesting for the companies that do get it right, which is what can you do with that that can actually impact the total cost of care and the total clinical outcomes that you're seeing from a patient perspective, from the operational perspective. This means financial impact, it means clinical impacts. What are the measurable impacts you're having on length of stay? What are the measurable impacts you're having on expanding margins? What are the measurable impacts you're having on bringing in new revenue because you've increased the catchment area because you made your providers more efficient so they can see more patients more broadly, right? Um, and how are you able to uh, then maybe reduce the number of diagnostic tests and imaging you're using? So you're maximizing capacity utilization on these high value areas, but you're doing it in a way that doesn't diminish the value of your DRG for an inpatient stay, or that unnecessarily drives costs in the system overall from an outpatient perspective. So as you're thinking about that, um, as a holistic level, either from a health system perspective or an investor perspective, there's a lot of opportunity for bringing down our trillion dollar healthcare system to a more rational level, but that doesn't sacrifice the quality of care provided and ideally improves that. Um, and so I know that's a ways off. So for a 2024 answer, it's getting to the point where it, A, it's more accepted. So all of the governance issues and um, guidelines that we've talked about on this call, which is exactly that, getting health systems, payers, the government regulations state by state ready to accept and move forward with that. Because like, like we saw with COVID, when there is an emergency, people will do it and they'll do it quickly because the resources can be there. But when there's not, what's going to incentivize people to make those steps? So I think for 2024, it might be a year of resetting while people look at what are the opportunities out there and how can we set ourselves up for that success while they try, like you guys are all doing, those pilot programs and those baby steps of, hey, let's see how this is working before we take it out in a bigger way, a splashier way, maybe out in 2025 and beyond. Well. I want to thank everyone for, for joining us here on the Seamless Connection podcast. It was a fun conversation. I'm glad we were able to kind of go through this panel style. Everyone had a chance to answer some questions, but also some individual ones. And uh, look forward to staying in touch with everyone and maybe having everyone come on in the future. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Thanks so much. Yeah.